Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Abergatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 275. And we are still on Hypothesis 32. And if you remember, we've been considering the practice of asceticism itself uh, in light of the, uh, the uh, individual's embrace of the monastic life what it means to commit oneself to the monastic garb and the particular role of a monastery, what it means to commit oneself uh, simply to the ascetic life as it is, and not to fall into negligence or laziness once one has embraced it. That, uh, And I think this, we could apply this to Christians in general, that I think when we grow lukewarm, uh, when our practice of the faith and our practice of the ascetical life grows weak or we grow negligent, then there's a kind of a, a scandal there or impediment, I think, to other people coming to the faith when they see our desire to live a holy life begin to wane and our discipline, uh, and especially in regards to the life of prayer and seeking to live the life of virtue begins to wane. And so I think we'll be able to take a lot from these two hypotheses, 32 and 33, uh, very challenging, but beautifully written. We're going to hear uh, again from Isaac the Syrian, as well as Ephraim the Syrian, and a number of other wonderful writers. And uh, so, and it ties in. There's some mention this evening of the sorrowful joy that uh, Climacus speaks of. And uh, so there'll be a little bit of a tie there between our two, two evenings of reading. So again, we're on page 275 the first full paragraph, if then in accordance with Holy Scripture. If then in accordance with Holy Scripture, you came to the monastery truly to serve God, prepare your heart, not for comforts and delights, but for temptations and afflictions. We must enter the kingdom of heaven through many afflictions, and the narrow and afflicted is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Pay attention to the few and the good, and be sure to regulate your life according to their example. Pay no attention to the lazy and those who despise that example, however many they may be. For as the Lord says, many are called, but few are chosen. Let us also keep in mind that the flock to which it was the Lord's good pleasure to give his kingdom is small. Do not think that it is any small sin for you to vow perfection and yet follow the example of the negligent and the indolent. So, as we finish off section uh, F here, we're given a little bit of a warning that the path that we've been called to walk uh, is what we hear in the scriptures. The narrow way that is one that is difficult and filled with affliction and that few find it and fewer still choose to walk this path. And so what we're asked to embrace within this world is no easy task, that to live in accord with the gospel, to follow uh, a master such as Christ, is to be willing to take up our cross daily, whatever that might be, and carry it with faith and with a hope in him and his, his promises. And the great temptation for us is going to perhaps listen to the voices, you know, both within and without uh, the church, telling us that such a life is a waste or too extreme, 
that one should lighten those burdens or not embrace them, that they're not significant or important, or they're from a bygone age, as if asceticism is something from the past. And so the writer warns us here not to listen to them at all, that to keep our focus upon those who've gone before us and who've, who've lived the life and who have been the example for us, most especially Christ himself and the apostles. Letter G from Abba Isaac. A monk is he who abides far from the world and unceasingly beseeches God that he might enjoy the good things to come. The wealth of a monk is the consolation which proceeds from mourning, penthos, and the joy that is born of faith which shines in the depths of his soul. So here, an explicit reference to what we've been discussing for quite a while now on Wednesday evening, Penthos, that the consolation of the monk is something that arises from mourning over one's sin, and that gives rise to the, as it says here, the joy that is born of faith, that what begins to shine on the light of the heart of one who's embraced this ascetic path is the joy of the kingdom, that as one begins to truly mourn over one's sin and begins to have a greater attachment to God and to virtue, one begins to taste something of the, the joy of the kingdom and begins to see it as something that is precious. The disposition of mourning is experienced by the soul of him who passes all the days of his life in hunger and thirst because he hopes in the good things that await him. For God inundates with sweet consolation the man who hungers for him. And he who goes through his life naked for God's sake is clothed by God with a garment of glory, which makes him incorruptible. So the, the more that one thirsts for God, and the more that one seeks to clothe oneself with virtue, and the things that draw one close to God, the life of prayer, letting go of one's attachments to the things of this world in order to be more fully attached to Christ, the more that one begins not only to taste something of the sweetness of the kingdom, but as the author says here, as Isaac says, to be clothed uh, by God in the garment of glory, to already begin to experience uh, what the fathers called deification, to begin to take on something of the very life of God, the very life of the Holy Trinity, uh, that this is something that God bestows upon those who have embraced him fully within this world and hold back nothing from him. And, uh, and so, again, you know, I think it prevents us from viewing the ascetic life and the struggles and even the pains of it as something disconnected from that relationship with God. But it also prevents us, I think, from viewing the promises of Christ as not something that's limited only to the kingdom, that the kingdom is now, is present to us in Christ. And we begin to experience that every time we receive Holy Communion, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Uh, as we take upon ourselves a life of virtue and become more and more conformed to Christ, the deeper the intimacy. So, you know, Christians who are living this life, no matter how difficult the ascetic life might be, the greater their joy should become, that we shouldn't be 
solemn figures in that regard uh, as people encounter us through the world that our asceticism uh, should bear a fruit of a deep joy and an abiding joy and uh, maybe something unlike what others would experience within this world. Uh, something that uh, reveals a deep hope in something that is far greater than what this world offers us and that is free from fear and anxiety that typically plague us within this world that this would be the true Christian joy and should be manifest in and through it. The monk should be a beneficial example for all who see his way of life. Above all, he should be distinguished by his disdain for visible material goods and by being truly poor, for completely disdaining his flesh, for fasting with strictness and tenacity, for persevering absolute uh, I'm sorry, preserving absolute chastity. He should live in silence, maintaining vigil over his senses and keeping them well disciplined. He should make himself a stranger to all contentiousness and not give way to anger. He should be concise in speech, having no remembrance of wrongs at all. He should be simple, but also discerning, showing contempt for the present life and longing for the future life. He should be removed from the world and worldly people and from all who are outside his monastery. And he should not wish to be known by them, nor should he be bound by friendship with them to, or keep company with any of them, nor should he inquire into the affairs or stoop to hearing about them. So, you know, some of this, of course, speaks to the monastic life and those who have embraced a life of complete solitude, who are living uh, whether the eremitic life, the life of an anchorite, or in the synovium. Uh, if you've ever been to St. Catherine's, for example, Mount Sinai, uh, St. John Climacus's monastery, it's very removed from everything and out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, one of the temptations, I think, for one who's left the world and all worldly things would to be would to be to have a kind of curiosity about worldly things or what's going on in the world, that there would be uh, at times a subtle pull back to those things that one has let go of precisely to embrace the life of the monastery. And so we find this kind of repetition within the writings about not looking backwards once you put your hand to the plow, in particular the plow of the monastic life. If you're going to let go of those things, don't allow your mind and your heart to, to drift back to them. And uh, I mentioned here once before, a modern day anchorite who lives uh, up in the mountains above the monastery of St. Anthony. And he says, you know, it's still a temptation for many of the monks who came from Egypt or came from Cairo and out to those monasteries because they are accessible to family and friends. And so there can be this kind of pull back to the life from which they came. And many of them are very well educated. They're physicians or you know, they've higher degrees and uh, but uh, for himself, he says, you know, he came from uh, from Russia and he didn't speak the language. And so in a sense, he's a true exile there. 
but there is always this temptation, he says, of those who come from the land to be pulled back from where they came from. And I think for all of us as Christian men and women, there's that temptation as well uh, to let go of that feeling of being an exile in this world, of being called to a different way of life. And this doesn't mean for us as it would for the monks, having no dealings with you know, those in the world, but it, it could involve that temptation to lift ourselves out of this internal feeling of living in an exile simply by embracing the gospel in its fullness, uh, especially in our own day. You know, the, you know not, not just the moral life, but the, the worldview, the view of life as a whole is shifting and shifting so radically that to live as a Christian in our day and age is to is going to mean that we are going to feel at times deep solitude and uh, deep alienation uh, from the world around us. Now, this doesn't mean we need to create it. I mean, Christians can be pretty good at that too, stirring up troubles and uh, becoming argumentative and hostile. You know, I don't think this is our call in the world. This is not what we're to bear witness to. Uh, we are to bear witness in our life to this selfless love of Christ. But to do that is like Christ, uh, whether in reality or symbolically, to have no place to lay our head, uh, having no place in this world that is comfortable for us. So it might not mean that we have no home but it might mean that in our place of work, uh, in an academic setting, and uh, you know, so many other uh, places within the world, sometimes with even within the church, we might feel that we are walking walking the path in isolation or alone or amongst very few, and uh, we don't want to give over ourselves over to a kind of sadness because of that. But we don't want to to allow it to pull us back to the things that we think will make us uh, feel fulfilled, that we always want to hold on to what Christ holds out to us, what he promises us in terms of that experience even now of being clothed with the, the garment of incorruptibility or experiencing something of the joy of the kingdom, the love of the kingdom, the love of the eternal trinity. Uh, this is what we are to hold on to and to seek. And what we get from this text is that we can't be half-hearted about it. If this is our desire, if this is what we truly long for in the world, then we have to step in with both feet. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. That we have to love Christ and seek to attach ourselves to him above all things. So often, I think, in the spiritual life, when I talk to people about particular struggles, it most often victory comes by having a greater attachment to Christ drive out our attachment to the things in this world. The deep, In other words, the deeper our love for Christ becomes, the more that we see the beauty of his love and the beauty of the kingdom, then the things that plague us, whether it be anger or lust or gluttony or our desire for the material things of this world, all of a sudden they begin to lose the attraction they once had and the pull to the point that we don't even desire them any longer. 
And we find if a thought or an idea comes into our mind that it's a, more of an annoyance than it is an attraction. So, so even though this paragraph, I'm sorry, there's a little fly, fly in here. This is why I'm making my hands go around. <laughs> so uh, even though this paragraph sounds harsh, I think what it's saying to us is, is very important. You know, don't let the things that in your commitment to Christ and that have led you to Christ, don't let those thing, the, the things that are opposite to it draw you back uh, into the world or away from your commitment to him to make you lukewarm or negligent in this spiritual life. A monk should not love the honors of men, nor should he take pleasure in receiving gifts, but should keep the place where he lives in silence and unknown to the majority of people. He should devote himself to prayers and give heed to and meditate upon the true and blissful realm that is the kingdom of heaven. Let the monk's face be always serious, furrowed, bedewed with tears, day and night. So a monk isn't living in the monastery to put on appearances and to attract others to himself in one way or another. And so if a monk has entered into the solitude and the silence of the monastery, he should maintain that. If the mourning over one's sin uh, is his focus, it should remain his focus. He shouldn't be concerned about, you know, and I, I would think maybe a good example here would be visitors coming to the monastery, not overly concerned with appearing to them in a certain way uh, that pulls them away from the whole focus of the monastic life, but even in his demeanor. Not that he should treat them rudely, but he should be able to maintain something of the solemnity of the monastic life and not have the visitation sacrifice that. And for a lot of these monasteries, that was a challenge, especially when word would get out that there you know, was a kind of wisdom there that people began to see. Anthony. This section by Isaac is jarring because it appears to conflict with duty to family and community, and it conflicts with the Christian cultural ideal, which Europeans at least remember from the Middle Ages. Pope Benedict's catechesis on the saints, which built Christendom, would be very different if he came from a culture that was dominated uh, by, say, Islam. Right. It is jarring. And, you know, I think there's so much about Christendom that is problematic, you know, because so much of it is rooted in uh, this sense of power. Uh, or a focus upon the things of this world. And not that Christianity isn't supposed to touch the world or to touch others, and especially when it comes to easing poverty and pain. Uh, but so often, I think we've seen it get caught up in the culture and in politics and focus upon uh, building uh, in a worldly kind of sense of things, rather than focusing upon the proclamation of the gospel, and more importantly, bearing witness to what is really at the heart of the gospel. 
and uh, again, you know, sort of elevating um, e even characters within uh, within the life of the church in, in a way that is inconsistent, I think, with even what we're reading here. You know, Saint Philip Neri had this saying: "You know, love to be unknown." And when men entered into the community, that this was supposed to be something that was to be formed in them very early on, that their embrace of this that particular way of life and what uh, they would bear witness to in the future means precisely not to be known by the world, that Christ must increase and they must decrease. And the whole reason of their entering into the religious life is for that purpose. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that, that who and what we are holding forward is the gospel and Christ, and not ourselves. And I think this, the danger is that to put ourselves forward, but even the, the church forward in a distorted fashion. Uh, you know, the, the church, especially as you mentioned it here, Christendom, has done so many wonderful things in terms of culture, art, the arts, sciences, things such as that. But uh, at various times, I think we can get so wrapped up in these things to the exclusion of preaching the gospel in its fullness. And, uh, you know, little aberrations begin to emerge and uh, before you know it, you know, the whole, I remember, no, don't take this wrong, because I have nothing against the man, but our, one of our bishops in Pittsburgh was, uh, oh, my goodness, I can't even remember his name now, Bevilacqua. And I like the man, you know, because, you know, he was one of the first bishops I met, and he was friendly to the uh, my community and supportive, and, but I, he's made a cardinal in Philadelphia and all the commercials at that time, they were going to sh uh, show his ordination, you know, and uh, his elevation and all the commercials were Anthony Bevilacqua, Prince of the church. And I, I remember cr cringing at it because on one level you could say, okay, I, I see what the, what's going on there and why people are thinking what they're thinking you know, in terms of the role or the office, but the image that it puts forward of, of the church. Uh, we are to see ours, you know, Paul says, none of you came from any, any background whatsoever. You're sort of the refuse of the, of the world. And so why think highly of yourself at all, that what you're called to bear witness to is the self-emptying love and, you know, you're, you're going to be hated by the world as I'm hated by the world. And as I've been persecuted, you're going to be persecuted. And the whole thing of putting forward prints of the church seems contrary uh, to that. And, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna make a huge thing about, about that, but it, it was sort of jarring. And going back to Philip Neary's uh, thing, love to be unknown, he wanted his men right from the beginning not to put themselves forward like Baronius was one of the men who wrote one of the first sort of using more modern methods of history. And he writes this 
comprehensive view uh, uh, of church history, multiple volumes, took decades of his life. And Philip mortified him to no end uh, because of, precisely because of the danger of living in Rome and being elevated. And he made part of the role not taking any ecclesiastical dignities, that if you were going to be a member of his community, you were not allowed to become a bishop, a monsignor, or receive any kind of benefits. And, uh, and so, you know, he was well aware of the trappings of the church of the time. And, uh, you know, I think when we, we think about it, we have to be very careful about that as well. Let me just look here. Bridget writes, I'm from Philly. He ended pretty disgraced. I think the princehood got to his head. This is a big crown to wear. And I agree it's contrary to religious life. Well, there are dangers to it. And I think uh, the, and I think Philip Neary understood that, you know, when we become known or an individual becomes known, there's a danger of pulling back onto himself the things that have really come about by the grace and the mercy of God. And when it comes down to it, uh, the distinction between saint and sinner really doesn't mean a whole lot in comparison to Christ and to God himself. And that it's all by the, it's all grace and it's all by the mercy of God that we've received what we received. And so to, to take anything for ourselves, uh, I think holds within it a kind of distortion. And so you're right, there is something very jarring about what Isaac is saying here, and we can read it in light of the monastic literature and what they're saying. But I think when we look at our own life, life within the church, even how the church looks today, I mean, think about how the, the priesthood has been diminished just over the past 20 years. Part of it is a loss of a sense of being servants. You know, Christ became a servant and slave to all, becoming obedient, even to the point of death. And we think in a mere 20 years, this image of the priesthood, maybe there's, and uh, one has to hope that there's providence in that, that God would restore it, the priesthood to what it is meant to look like. But uh, it's been completely diminished. Anthony Wright, oops, and then I'll go to Babington or Babby here. In my opinion, I believe I see this worldliness emerge in Europe after the rocky path the Germanic tribes had in full conversion to the faith. The Romano Greeks in the East had similar problems manifested another way. Hence the unflattering term Byzantine. Each culture needs to fully convert, not flatter themselves. Yeah, excellent, well, well put. And you're right, because I think there is this kind of danger of enculturation, but it's really the church that is you know, being shaped by the culture. And, uh, you know, in opening the doors or the windows of the church, we can sort of let in a whole host of things rather than allowing us to engage the world. Maybe we weren't prepared to engage the world as it, as it was and as it has become. And I think perhaps that's shown itself true. We're not, we weren't deeply rooted enough in the gospel or in the spiritual tradition. Uh, Babington wrote, I think it was St. Therese who wrote, everything I have and, I, and everything I am is pure gift. 
everything I have, everything I am is pure gift. Right, yes. And, uh, you know, I read something from her today that says, you know, love does not calculate and, and that we don't, in acting in love and in imitating Christ, calculate things for ourselves, even on a spiritual level. And similarly with her, you know, this love to be unknown, she wanted to be sent away to a Carmel where nobody knew her, you know, where she didn't have her sisters there and that she would just live out the Carmelite life. And, uh, and you know, even with Therese, you know, saying, uh, I long for a love that is not felt, she said. And I remember being shaken by that the first time I, I read it, because she's saying that I love, I long for a love there that isn't simply given to me for consolation, that I want to experience the love of God purely for the sake of loving him rather than what I would receive from it. And, you know, this takes a kind of heroic faith and deep faith uh, to say it, but even more to mean it and embrace it. Okay. Did I finish that paragraph? Yes? No. I have one more par uh, paragraph to go. Yeah. These are, as concisely as possible, the virtues of the monk, which will prove that he has totally died to the world and drawn near to God. Let him who is concerned about his spiritual life then examine attentively whether he is deficient in any of the points enumerated above. And if he finds that he does fall short, let him realize that the name monk does not befit him. When he acquires all the virtues that I've mentioned, then God will allow him to come to know the remainder, which I did not cite. And when he has become the reason for other men to glorify God, already before he departs from this life, he will have prepared a place of rest for his soul. So, you know, not to enter into and embrace the life of a monk or the name monk, unless you have really embraced and sought these virtues out already. And ultimately the goal is that when one is living this life that others would give glory to God. That's ultimately what we would want, that embracing the monastic life or whatever path we would take, that that would be the reason behind it. Okay, so that's Isaac the Syrian uh, from Maximus the Confessor. When Holy Scripture speaks of the world, it has material things in mind. Consequently, worldly people are those who occupy their minds with these things. And scripture tells them somewhat reproachfully, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of God, but is of this world and so on. So especially in the Gospel of John, we find this usage of the, of the word world. And in particular, uh, a notion of the fallen world, this kind of distorted view of life, of material goods, of the things of human life. And so when we hear John speak of it in this kind of way, love not the world, 
You know, it's love not the, the, the things of this world in the distorted way that we often do through the eyes of sin. And in order to have that kind of freedom, one needs to embrace the ascetic life, to die to self and to die to these things of this world in order that one might begin to see these things with the eyes of Christ and through the eyes of love. Only then does one, I think, have a kind of freedom in the face of all these things. A monk is one who has separated his mind from material things and who, through continence and love, psalmody, prayer, stands steadfastly next to God. So, you know, having set aside these things, it becomes necessary to fill the mind and the heart and the attention with that which is good and formative. Continence, love, psalmody, prayer. Uh, all these things that focus one's attention and develop that attachment to the Lord. So it's not, you know, again, asceticism outside of that is meaningless. And one would say harmful outside of the love of God and the things of God. Oh, monk, take care that no one should beguile you into believing that it is possible to be saved while you are still enslaved to pleasure and vain glory. And so, you know, not to live under the illusion, again, of having one foot in the world, the fallen world, as we've just talked about, and one foot in the kingdom, that we can be seeking these things, uh, you know, throughout the week and in our day-to-day -day life, and somehow by, you know, going to mass on the weekend or performing certain religious uh, duties or activities that you know, we are truly living for Christ. And, you know, whenever a religion becomes something that's cultural, becomes part and parcel of one's family dynamic, the culture of the family life, it can often become that. You know, this is what we do, but it's is it something that's really formative? He goes on to say, the accomplishments of people in the world are the cause of falls for monks. And the accomplishments of monks bring about falls for those in the world. For example, worldly accomplishments are wealth, glory, power, luxury, beautiful bodies, fine children, and every such thing. But when a monk pursues these things, he is lost. Now, the accomplishments of the monk are poverty, avoidance of glory, humility, weakness, continence, hardship, and every like thing. But whenever he who loves the world is reduced to this state, contrary to his intention, he considers it to be the greatest fall and often runs the risk of hanging himself. And some people have actually had recourse to this. So what an interesting view of things that, you know, the pull the fall, to fall for a monk would be this attraction to worldly uh, gains and wealth and all the benefits of this world. But, you know, for those who are in this world and have all those things who fall into what the monk freely embraces uh, as this path to freedom and path to God are often brought to this uh, deep state of despondency that without these things, there can seem to be a loss of identity a loss of hope when our when we root our identity 
and the things that we accomplish within this world or that we have or achieve the moment that we lose it. And it, again, it doesn't mean that these things have to be sinful or evil, uh, but it does mean that uh, if we root our identity in them and our sense of purpose, our value, when we lose them, we can feel that we've lost ourselves and lost our purpose for living. And, uh, and so this is even a, a greater danger. You know, the monk has his own, but the, the one who's fully given over to the pursuit of the things of this world stands in the real danger. Mark Kelly wrote, one of the better known sayings of the Desert Fathers is, there are two things to avoid, an easy life and vain glory. Right. You know, so an easy life, you know, one where we're focused upon simply satisfying our own needs and gravitate to the life that it offers us to that with the greatest ease or vainglory, you know, of being so taken with ourselves or think that, you know, we are of great wealth or we have great minds, intellects. We see things like other people don't see them, you know, that somehow this makes us better. And certainly religious minded people, you know, aren't immune to any of this. All right. He who succeeds in renouncing worldly things, such as a wife, money and the like, has made only the outer man a monk, but not yet the inner man. However, he who succeeds in overcoming his passionate thoughts has by this made his inner man, which is the spiritual mind, a monk. Anyone can easily make the outer man a monk, provided he is willing, but struggle is needed for one to make the inner man a monk. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the external aspects of the ascetic life, the monastic life are stripped away as having meaning in and of themselves, that it is the inner man. And, you know, in this way, it's very much like the, what Christ did within the gospel. You know, when he said, when, especially when he's talking about dietary laws, that there's nothing that enters into the man that makes him unclean. And I think we've talked about that before, that, you know, no Jew ever believed that. And they died, you know, uh, you know, experienced martyr, martyrdom in order not to break the dietary laws. But here's Jesus in, in one statement saying, no, you know, it's, it's not what you take in to your belly that makes you unclean. It's what arises out of the heart that makes one unclean and defiles a person. And so similarly, Maximus is saying here, you might have the appearance of a monk, you might give up all those things, and it only takes a strong-willed person to be able to do that, to say, I'm going to set, set aside all these things. One could be a, sort of a stoic and say, you know, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me to have all these things, I'm going to set them aside. But that does not make him a monk. It does not make him a lover of God and a lover of the kingdom who desires God above all things, nor does it make him pure of heart. And so, you know, Maximus is saying, you know, don't fool yourself in the embrace of the ascetic life, unless there is tied to it uh, desire 
longing for God, longing for love. Is there anyone, I wonder, in this generation who has completely delivered himself from passionate thoughts and been deemed worthy to engage unceasingly in pure and immaterial prayer? This is precisely the mark of the inner monk. So this leads Maximus to ask, you know, can, can we safely say that there's someone or that there are many who are living this life in such a way that they've reached this level of unceasing prayer? You know, is there among even the monks of his time, he's asking, those who are living it in a, a pure kind of way? Uh, Anthony writes, single-minded here, uh, right, or single-hearted, that, and, you know, if we put it to our generation, you know, are there many among us who are living, you know, the Christian life in a recognizable way within the world, you know, whose hearts belong to Christ and who are seeking him uh, in whatever station they find themselves? And do any of us take up the ascetic life uh, in, in such a way as to attach ourselves to Christ uh, more deeply with any kind of zeal? Or is there a kind of laziness and negligence in regard to the spiritual life? And finally, he says, many passions lie hidden in our souls. They are only revealed when the things that feed and arouse these passions are brought to light. So, you know, part of the ascetic life is to allow the light of Christ to shine into the deep recesses of our hearts and to open our minds and our hearts to you know, the, the writings of the scriptures, the writings of the fathers, and within our prayer to the light of Christ directly in order that he might illuminate those parts of ourselves that we might hide, even from ourselves, uh, you know, on not necessarily a conscious level. And uh, this weekend in our, our group here in the parish, we were talking about the heart as the fathers understood it. And uh, Anthony Conieris says that the heart really contains so many different things. What we've, uh, we've talked about, the noose, the eye, the heart, eye, the soul, the conscience, the volition, the will to do God's commandments, desire for God. Uh, but, and so he says, you know, all of these things are contained in the heart which he says modern psychology has called in a different way, unconscious. That the larger part of ourselves as not only human beings, but as spiritual beings is not seen by the human eye. That the deeper part of ourselves and even what we see of the saints is, I've heard one of the modern writers say this, what we see of the saints is the least part of them. So even in their greatness, what we see of them is what is least great about them in terms of the action of God's grace within their life and what we, we have no vision of. And th that's true for all of us. I think that we, we aren't aware of all the things that God does within the human heart, the action of his grace from moment to moment and sustaining us but also giving us strength in, in difficult times, but also freeing us from the things that hold us in bondage. 
that so much of the action of that grace remains hidden to us. And it's for this reason that we want to open the mind and the heart and why the fathers put forward the ascetic life and the kind of prayer that they often speak about, that we would provide no impediment to the working of that grace within us, that we would seek to be opening our mind and our heart as freely as possible so that we're setting aside our attachment to the passions and the things that give rise to the passions, but also the, the things that are distractions in this life and even our thoughts that can be distractions that pull us away from God. We move away from all of that in order that his love and his grace might penetrate the depths of our hearts and transform us. That again, that we might even now begin to experience something of the fullness of, of the life of the kingdom. And so, you know, as we make our way through this and in concert with the other writings that we're, we've been reading, what a beautiful image of the life that we are called to begins to emerge. The path to it is by no means an easy one. And I think all of us have struggled with the, the writings. But when we get a glimpse of, of the life that we're called to and the freedom, the joy, the you know, incorruptibility, uh, a joy that no one can take away from us, you know, we begin to you know, catch sight of the image of what God has called us to. Okay, anything on this section from St. Maximus? Okay, from the Gerontcon uh, writings of the fathers, Abba John the Cilician, abbot of the monastery of Raithru, told the brothers the following. The, that name should be somewhat familiar to us because he is the abbot who wrote St. John Climacus, writing, asking him to write the ladder of divine ascent for the men of his monastery. And so his monastery, the one that's mentioned here, uh, if you look in the footnote, is about 60 miles from the monastery at Mount Sinai. So they're fairly close as far as it goes. Uh, but there was this relationship between this John and St. John Climacus uh, in another setting. My children, just as we fled from the world, so let our minds flee from the desires of the flesh. For a true monk is he who has been delivered from these desires. So let our, our minds flee from the desires of the flesh so that the true monk is he who has been delivered from these desires. So what we find incomplete within ourselves, what can only be satisfied by God and fulfilled by God, we let, we seek to acknowledge clearly that it's not the things of this world, that we begin to understand with a greater and greater clarity that nothing here can satisfy the, the void that we fill in the depths of our heart. That longing that we all know is something that only God can fill. Let us consider our fathers and with what hardship and silence they remained here and let us imitate them let us not defile this place which they cleansed of demons and sanctified. Let us mark well 
that this place is a place of ascetics and not of traitors, and let us live worthy lives. I was struck so much by this paragraph that I copied it out today, that, you know, that he's reminding them that there are those who've gone before who fought the good fight of faith and who've entered into this spiritual warfare, who've cleansed uh, themselves and the place, the monastery of demons, and, and worked to sanctify the place, to make it a holy place, the monastery as a whole. And so to mark well, as, as you enter into this, this is a place of ascetics. Don't you dare turn it into a place of trade, trade traders, not traitors, like betrayers, but even though one could use them interchangeably, I think, but uh, like money changers in the temple, you know, don't turn this house of prayer, this place given over wholly to God as uh, a place that is, uh, you know, where people are selling and buying goods, even if those goods are spiritual goods, you know, don't make this a place where you are, again, are hucksters, you're selling something, you're like Bible salesmen, and, you know, don't diminish the labors of all of those who have gone before you and made the ultimate sacrifices and undermine the very life of the monastery for which they sweat blood for over the course of time. Don't hand it back to the demons that they have, have done battle with. And he says, know this as well that if you wish to follow the fathers and to keep God's commandments, God will send his grace and will preserve this place. But if you do not keep them, then you will not remain in this place. We have dwelled here keeping God's commandments and observing the instructions of the fathers, believing that after their departure to the Lord, they remained with us and kept an eye on our doings. Do this yourself and you will be delivered from all evils. So don't, <clears throat> don't live under the illusion that if you turn away from the path of the fathers, that you will also remain in this place, holy place yourself. Because not only will the grace of God drift away from you, but the very nature of this place will change, as well as the guardianship and protection and the prayers of the fathers that have gone before you and watch over your doings. It's a powerful thing. And I think, you know, when we look at some of these Eastern monasteries, their reverence for the elders that have gone before them is really quite striking. And in some, in some ways, I think it seems uh, strikingly unappealing because they keep their relics. And, you know, they have rooms full, what are they called, ossuaries? full of their bones and their skulls, and often with their names written on the skulls. And often, you know, it becomes a place for, you know, this remembrance of death, but also this remembrance of those who have entered into this battle, those holy ones who, who really struggled to, to live this life and who are still very much a part of, of this community and his life watching over it. And I think in our day and age, we've lost sight of the importance of elders, whether it's within families or in monasteries, 
you know, those who've been through the trials of life and the struggles of life and pass on a certain wisdom. And there are previous generations, you know, that went through hell and back and communicated something, you know, to their, their children moving forward, certain values, a worldview, the, you know, the importance of sacrifice, hard work, all, all these different things. And similarly, within a monastery, you know, this is pass, passed on. And if, you know, monastery is lacking in elders, those who are really living the life, uh, then who is it that's going to protect them through the difficult times or when they become embattled? And what's going to hold them together? And what the author is telling us here is nothing. It will collapse and so will their commitment to that way of life. An elder from the Thebaid related the following. I was a son of a pagan priest. One day when I was still a small boy, I saw my father entering the idolatrous temple to perform a sacrifice. And I entered behind him. I saw Satan sitting there with his entire army around him. At one point, one of his commanders approached him and bowed. Satan said to him, where have you come from? I was in this country, he replied, and I instigated wars among the inhabitants and provoked much bloodshed. And now I have come to report it to you. How much time did you take to bring this about, asked Satan? Thirty days. As soon as Satan heard this answer, he ordered him to be flogged, saying, this is the only thing you accomplished during that time? After him, another commander approached Satan in the same way and said to him, I was in the sea and I stirred up winds and sank ships and killed many men, so I came to report it to you. When Satan asked him how much time he had taken to accomplish this and learned that it was 20 days, he ordered him to be flogged like the first because he had accomplished nothing else in that space of time. After him came another who reported that in one city, while a wedding was taking place, he provoked a fight between the men with much bloodshed and even succeeded in having the bridegroom and the bride killed. He said that he had achieved this in 10 days, but he, like his predecessors, was found guilty of procrastination and was flogged. After they had been flogged, yet another demon came into their midst. Satan then asked him, and you, where, have you come, where are you coming from? I was in the desert, he answered, and for 40 whole years, I waged war against a single monk. Just this night, I defeated him, and he fell into the sin of fornication. Scarcely had Satan heard this feat, then he arose, kissed the demon, took the crown off his own head, placed it on the head of this victorious demon. After they had brought a throne and, a throne and put it near him, Satan made the demon sit on it beside him, joyfully telling him, Bravo, how were you able to do such a great deed? When I, when I saw all these things, said the elder from the Thebaid, I realized how great in dignity is the rank of a monk and how much it frightens the demons. Without delay, I departed from the idolatrous temple. By the grace of God, I became a monk. It's an extraordinary story. 
for a lot of different reasons, you know, that those other demons procrastinate in a month, 20 days, and 10 days, and performing these awful things and bringing about destruction. And yet another demon uh, spends 40 years, you know, working on a monk until he breaks his vow and is praised by Satan, enthroned, crowned by him. And uh, you know, this reveals to this young man just the, the, the value, the importance uh, the monk has in having given his life over fully to God and withholding nothing. In mind and body, living for the Lord alone, that there's something about this life for the life of the church in terms of the witness of this uh, unfettered love for Christ uh, that, that it has for the church, that it is more valuable than anything. And so this demon is praised. And you see in, in the course of time, this kind of diminishment of the consecrated life in the sense that we were very uncomfortable with this, the notion and the language of hierarchy. And, you know, the idea that the religious life or the vowed life has this particular value. And so we might be uncomfortable hearing this, that, you know, somehow bringing down a monk after 40 years has this great value in the eyes of Satan. But it's also saying that it has this value for the church, not elevating the monk in and of himself, but the witness to the power of God's grace and what that grace in a single monk does for, for the life of the church as a whole. It it's becomes as if that life is a, a pillar that reaches down to the bedrock and provides stability to the life of the church. I think I've mentioned once before that uh, certain individuals have said that, you know, you know a diocese's strength by the number of contemplative communities that it has within it. And because here you have individuals that are unceasingly engaged in prayer, not, not simply for themselves, but for the church as a whole. And, uh, and, you know, I think when we look even more closely at these monks of old, uh, these great ascetics, you know, they play this important role within the life of the church now, not just, you know, 1400 years ago or whenever, you know, a particular monk lived. It's for the life of the church as a whole that it is a sort that their life is a source of strength. And again, in these hidden ways, you know, sort of what I was saying about the heart being this, uh, like the unconscious, you know, this huge part of the iceberg underneath the water that we never see. And we think of these spiritual warriors engaged in this battle for not simply for themselves, but for the life of the church as a whole still having impact upon the church in its darkest hours. And, you know, in some ways, I think it's part of the reason I'm attracted to reading the fathers is because I think that they're this source of strength for the church, as, as are the saints as a whole. 
uh, for every age, that it's, you know, in turning and looking to them, when we encounter this kind of darkness within the life of the world and within the church itself, uh, that we find within ourselves the uh, not only the, that dis greater desire for Christ, but a source of renewal. And uh, one modern elder said, you know, in every age, renewal within the church begins with the Desert Fathers, with the great ascetics, because they, again, they set us back on that path to embracing the gospel in an unvarnished fashion, in its fullness. And in this, we find our hope because it binds us to Christ and, and opens us up to the working and action of his grace. Any comments here on this section or on the story? Ambrose Little reminds me of the style of parables, first of the ser unfaithful servants, then like the inverse of the parable of the lost sheep. But in this case, it's celebration of Satan and all of hell when just one sheep is lost. Excellent. Excellent point. Yeah, I, I think is exactly that, you know, where Christ leaves you know, the 99 for the one, uh, you know, in a, this kind of bizarre and sick way, you know, Satan rejoices over, you know, the loss of the one. Uh, and, uh, but it shows us sort of the same thing, you know, that this one uh, can have, you know, all the importance in the eyes of, of God and for the life of the church. It's a very powerful kind of parable or story. Any final thoughts on anything from tonight? Hard to walk away from these and not have it swimming around in your mind for a week. So hopefully it'll do that. It's been doing it for me. So, okay, we'll stop there for the evening. Uh, for anyone who's in town uh, this weekend, uh, we're, our lectures for the university students are starting. Uh, again, the Sunday evening following a 5 p.m. liturgy at uh, Holy Spirit Parish on Fifth Avenue. And uh, the title of the talk is called Joyous Resolution. And so we're, we're looking at sort of this making resolution in one's life to live in accord with the will of Christ, but in a distinctively Christian and uniquely Christian fashion. What does it mean for the Christian to make a resolution to live the, the gospel life more fully. And so if you're in town, uh, please feel free to join us. Everybody's welcome, or, or also we'll be uh, live streaming the event as well if you want to follow along. So I'll make sure that's up online, the link for it, that is. Okay. So when we close, as, as always, with, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you.